Well, it is a joy to be with you all this evening. Um, it's a special day. It's a, as I said a moment ago, a day when we focus on the, the ascension. Uh, it's also in our country Mother's Day. Uh, a little bit later, we'll be praying um, a prayer for all kinds of motherhood, spiritual motherhood, adoptive motherhood, actual motherhood for our mothers. Um, and, and so hopefully in some way you'll realize that uh, this is a, a time that connects to all of us. Um, but right now we're going to continue our series that we started a few weeks ago in the book we call Philippians. It's Paul's letter to the Philippians. And the title of this series is The Joyful Life. The joyful life. And that's because joy is one of the great themes that runs through Philippians. It makes it a wonderful book. But it's unique in this sense. That when you look at the themes in Philippians and you look at the circumstances in which this letter was written, there's a massive disconnect. So you have themes of joy and gratitude and rejoicing and generosity Those are the themes and then the circumstances in which this letter were written. Imprisonment, suffering, wrongful accusation and persecution, betrayal, unrest, rivalry, pending execution. There's a massive disconnect. In other words, it's a a joy that doesn't make sense. And what we'll see is that Paul's joy is possible. It's a unique kind of joy, and it's possible because of the way he measures his life. In other words, joy is not connected to our circumstances themselves. Joy is something that comes out of the meaning that we attach to our circumstances. And that depends entirely on what we believe about the purpose of life itself. So this is what we're going to be talking about Tonight, the passage is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And first we'll see something about God's purposes. And then we'll see how those purposes shape Paul's perspective. And then lastly, we'll consider the implications for our own lives, our own measurements and metrics, our own definition of life. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would lead us and guide us. You're here in our midst. We know that. And we pray that as you are present, so you will speak. Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. So first of all, we we have to understand something as we read this passage about God's purposes. Um, This passage... Um, is actually sandwiched between two verses, and these verses aren't actually included in the passage, so I'm sort of cheating a bit to reference them. But um, anytime you see recurring references to the same idea throughout a letter, it means it's pretty important. And so we're going to look at this sort of sandwich that happens um, before and after our passage. Uh, First of all, just before our passage in verse 6, Paul says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So that's just before our passage. And then just after it, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, For it is God who works in you to will and to act 
in order to fulfill his good purpose. So both of these convey the same thing, that God is at work fulfilling his purposes. And a joyful life starts with this as a core assumption. It starts with this as a core assumption. That God's purposes are always unfolding. God's purposes are always unfolding. God is orchestrating everything from the time it all began in creation to the time that everything draws to its conclusion that God is in it every step of the way. And this theme isn't just in Philippians, it's actually a theme that runs through the whole Bible. And I could, we could spend hours surveying that. Um, it would be worth your time to look up the word purpose and to look at all of the places where it occurs in Scripture. I just want to give you a few interesting examples to show what I mean. In Genesis, we read about Joseph... And some of you know the story. It's very well known. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers out of jealousy. He's sold into slavery. His father thinks he's dead. Uh, Decades pass. And Joseph rises in the ranks of Egypt to become a very powerful man. And famine strikes. And his family's on the brink of death. And they travel to Egypt to to beg aid or they're going to starve to death. And who is in the position to decide whether they live or die? It's Joseph. And Joseph famously, in in Genesis 50, verse 20, says this. He says to his brothers, as he's letting them know he's going to have mercy on them, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, that many lives could be saved. He's not saying it was one or the other. He's saying it was both. You meant evil, and at the same time, God meant good. You had your purpose, but even your purpose was subsumed into God's purpose. God's purposes were unfolding. In Exodus, Pharaoh enslaves God's people, sets himself up as a rival to God. You know, the early chapters of Exodus are all about who's the real God, Pharaoh or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Pharaoh refuses to listen to Moses when God sends him and says, let my people go. He utterly mocks and blasphemes and rejects the God of the Bible. And here's what God says in chapter 9, verse 16 of Exodus. He says this to Pharaoh. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Even your rebellion, even your resistance, even your your mockery of me, even your refusal to listen, all of that is actually a part of my plan. You're playing your part. Job, after all Job goes through and all of the unanswered questions, 42 chapters of struggling and strife, at the very end of the book, Job's breakthrough... Job's realization is this, chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No matter what, no matter who, no matter how, the one sure thing is God's purposes unfolding. And this is how the first Christians understood all of history. In Acts chapter 13, there's a sermon And in verse 36, it says this, for David, and this is talking about King David, the great king, the great, one of the greatest figures in the history of Israel, 
It says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. What they're saying is this. David and all the exploits, all the amazing things that he did, David wasn't a hero in the sense that we normally think of a hero. David was just playing his part. God is the hero, and David was simply fulfilling the purposes that God laid out for him to play. So all of history is part of God's purpose. And this raises questions about, well, how does that work? And the way this plays out is, 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 is in my opinion, way beyond anything you find when you look at other philosophies and religions. At the risk of a bit of oversimplification, I'll just say that up front, you can loosely group most philosophies and religions into one of two camps. You have the philosophies that tend toward fatalism and determinism. And without geeking out over the differences between the two, they essentially both say, in one way or another, that uh, the end is fixed. And that your choices ultimately don't matter. That the end is set, it's determined. Right? So think about the classic story of Oedipus. Right? Oedipus was told at the very beginning, you have been fated, Oedipus, to kill your father and marry your mother. Oedipus says, no way. He spends the entire time trying to make sure, doing everything he can to fight this destiny. And in the end, what happens? He kills his father. He marries his mother. It was destined to happen. It was fated to be. Right? A more modern example is the, the, the Matrix series where you have Morpheus and Mr. Smith they're, they're, they're fatalistic, right? What is Mr. Smith's famous line? It is inevitable, Mr. Anderson. It is inevitable, right? The destiny is fixed, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you choose it or not, that's where you're headed. So that's one way of thinking about uh, this kind of thing. The other sort of grouping of worldviews tend toward uh, free will, right? So fatalism and determinism, they say... The, the, the future is fixed despite your choices. Despite your choices. But the free will side says your future is determined not in spite of your choices, but because of your choices. Because of your choices. So choose your own destiny. Choose your own adventure. Choose your own path, right? You can change your destiny. You can make the future into anything you want it to be. You just have to make the right choices, and so we can imagine, like in Back to the Future, that if you want to change the present and, you, and if you could go back in time, then all you would have to do is make different choices and you can radically change the future. The future is up for grabs. It's all about what we choose with our free will. So Christianity, when you look at these, comparatively speaking, Christianity is both and neither at the same time. Because the first perspective says our destiny is determined despite our choices. The second says our destiny is determined because of our choices. But Christianity says this, and it's, I think it's much more nuanced and balanced and, and beautiful and realistic. It says this, that God has such control over history, and yet he's so intimately involved in our lives, that the future is determined not despite, not because, but through our choices. And what I mean by that is this, that God is sovereignly able to weave our choices into his ultimate purposes like a tapestry. 
that regardless of what we choose, regardless of how we might mean things for evil, like Joseph's brothers, regardless of how we might rebel and resist, like Pharaoh, that in some way, beyond our ability to understand, God is able to weave those things into his ultimate purposes. And what this means is amazing. On the one hand, it means our choices are our own. They matter. They have consequences. They impact the world. They change things. I'm responsible for my choices. I'm not just following a deterministic path. I am am responsible for the choices that I make and the impact that those have. And yet, God is ultimately directing the courses and outcomes. He's weaving everything together, repurposing even the most dire evil acts for good. And what this doesn't mean is evil is replaced by good. What this doesn't mean is that the ends justify the means. This is not me saying, oh, this is bad now and death and evil and suffering, but one day it'll all be worth it. It's a both end. This is bad and evil and horrible, and somehow God is able to triumph over it and bring good from it in ways only he understands. And all of this is moving toward this ultimate purpose of God. And so the question becomes, what is that ultimate purpose? And I think the clearest statement of it is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, where it says the ultimate purpose is this. God's ultimate purpose in history is that he's drawing all things together in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth, all things in and under Christ. Right? The ascension is what? A celebration of Jesus becoming king of all things. God's ultimate purpose is that all things would then come under and into King Jesus. This is the ultimate purpose. It's centered in Christ. So what you need to understand is this is the backdrop that Paul is working with. This is his worldview. This is the set of assumptions that he has when he's trying to make sense of his life. And it radically shapes his perspective. He's assuming that everything that happens is a part of God's unfolding purpose centered in Christ. So now the question becomes, if that is the way God's purpose works, then how does that shape Paul's perspective? See, for Paul, the purposes of God define his sense of purpose in his own life. So they kind of form the lens through which he looks at his life. It all is seen through the lens of God's purposes. And and you see this in how he looks in his past, his present, and his future. Right? So in verses 12, 13, and 14, Paul is kind of looking backwards. He's looking at the past. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's really served to advance the gospel. Now, think about what has happened to Paul. Right? Paul is commissioned personally by Jesus. That's, that's pretty unique. To go and to plant churches and to evangelize and to tell people about the gospel. And he goes, and his dream from the very beginning is to go to Rome. I want to go to the center of world power. I want to preach to the, to the highest authorities. And I want to tell them about Jesus. And he gets to Rome, and what happens? No evangelism, no church planting. He's there in chains. He's put in prison under house arrest. And the way this works is, 
um, he wasn't necessarily chained to the floor. It's not as bad as we sometimes think. He was under house arrest, but he had to be chained to a guard all day. Right? So a rotation of Praetorian guards would come in and be chained to him. Right? And so you look at this situation and you think, you know, Paul, I, I want to plant churches. I want to tell people about Jesus. Now he has no chance of getting out of his house, no chance of going to the public square, no chance of preaching the gospel, no chance of building churches, no chance of training leaders, and certainly no chance of talking to the heads, the, the higher-ups the center of power. It looks like a total failure. And yet through Paul's lens, because his one constant is the unfolding purposes of God, because he knows whatever else is happening, those purposes are right on schedule, he's able to recognize what's happening. He doesn't collapse in despair. He realizes, oh, here's the situation. Every day, Cynical, pagan, military, civil servants have to come to his house and they have to be chained to the most effective evangelist in the world for hours. And there's no TV, there's no iPad, there's no books. All there is is conversation. And so Paul says, guess what? The entire Praetorian Guard, they've all heard the gospel. They've all heard the gospel one by one in the comfort of his own home. He doesn't even have to put his shoes on. One by one, intimate evangelism, right? And he says that other people are seeing this, other brothers in the faith, brothers and sisters, and they're seeing this and they're realizing, well, if this is how God is using Paul's imprisonment, I shouldn't be afraid of prison. And so they're all starting to preach as well. And he says, because of my imprisonment, not in spite of it, but through my imprisonment, there's a groundswell of the gospel. God's purposes are unfolding. And he says, therefore, I rejoice. I couldn't be happier. You know, God promised that the gospel would be advanced. He didn't promise the circumstances. Paul's not holding on to circumstances. He's focused on the main thing. And then he looks at his present. In verse 15, he shifts the focus. And, and, and we learn in verses 15 to 18 that in Paul's absence, what's happening? Well, you have other preachers coming into Philippi and preaching and teaching. Right? This is his beloved church. He had planted it 10 years earlier. I think they were his favorites. I really do. I don't know that he played favorites, but I think that they were his favorites. He's just crazy about the Philippians. And you have these other people who are coming in. And some of them, from a good, sincere motive, are, are preaching, Paul's not here, so I'm going to do my best to preach the gospel to you and to teach you about Jesus. But then you have other people who are saying, Paul failed. Look at Paul. He's in prison. God's obviously removed his anointing. God's obviously moved on from Paul. God's raising me up. I want everybody to listen to me now. I'm the new Paul. And you have people doing this out of rivalry, out of contempt for Paul, wanting to undermine his authority. And Paul hears this, and you would think any, most people would freak out. Traitor! You know, Absalom, I can't believe you're doing that. And, and you would rally, you know, Epaphroditus, go back there and, and threaten them and tell them. That's not what he does. Paul hears about this. He looks at it through the lens of God's unfolding purposes. And he says this in verse 18. He says, what then? In other words, what should I do? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. 
Right? So Paul's measure of success is this. Is Christ being proclaimed? And, you know, I, I said this this morning as well. I mean, it struck me today how this could be a whole conversation as we try to make sense of different churches and different pastors and those that have been in the news and been discredited. Um, what we need to understand is they're preaching the true gospel, not false gospels, but the true gospel, but with very, very bad motives. And yet Paul says, still Christ is being proclaimed. Praise God. In that I can rejoice. Now, if you think this is unrealistic, if you're hearing this and you think, well, that kind of piety, that kind of passion, single-minded focus on Jesus, that's unrealistic. Well, I would say I don't think that's unrealistic. I think that we do this kind of thing all the time, just not with Jesus. But, I mean, if you're starting a business and you know that you've got to get that bottom line up, right, that everything hinges, that you will be bankrupt if you don't build this thing and you're looking at that bottom line and unless your costs come down and your revenue goes up, unless that profit margin increases over time, then you're sunk. So when that thing starts to go up, you don't care if you're sleeping three hours a night on the floor of your office. You don't care if you haven't seen your friends and family for months. You don't care about that because if you're solely focused on that bottom line and that thing is going up, you're going to rejoice. Right? If you want to be a, a world-class athlete or a musician, you will joyfully spend hours and hours and hours and hours practicing, not hanging out with your friends, not hanging out with your family. You will joyfully submit yourself to incredibly challenging trials. Because why? Because your bottom line, that thing, that main thing for you, is excellence in whatever you do. So we understand this kind of single-minded focus. For Paul, his purpose is God's purpose, to see all things come together in Christ. And then lastly, this impacts the way we see the future, the way Paul sees his future. I mean, get this, not only past, not only present, but when he looks into the future, what's he facing? Most likely execution. Most likely execution. And yet when he looks... He says, beginning in verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. As I look at this potential future, I will rejoice. Well, why can he rejoice in his future? Simple. Two options. He's either going to live or he's going to die. Two options. He has no idea. And yet he thinks about it through the lens of God's purposes. He says, well, if I die, I will actually get to be face to face with Christ. It will be the thing that I have longed for my whole life. Uh, the, the thing that my most amazing spiritual experiences have just been a, a shadow of what I will experience on the other side of that death. Yeah, I can rejoice in that. But then he says, but if I remain alive, then I will have the opportunity to continue to tell people about Jesus, to tell you about Jesus, to make sure your faith is strengthened in Jesus. And in that I can rejoice. And so he thinks about it and realizes it doesn't matter. I can live or die. I don't even know what I want more. But I can rejoice in all of it. Paul looks at his whole life, past, present, and future, and he's able to rejoice in all of it. Because while everything else may be changing, there's one thing that remains constant. There's one constant. God's unfolding purposes in Christ. And so here is the point. Paul has discovered the secret to a joyful life. 
This is the, the secret of a joyful life. And you see it clearly in verse 21. Paul says, here's my secret. Here's, here's, here's the key. For me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. One of the most important verses in the New Testament. To live is Christ. That's his whole purpose. That's the definition of his life. In other words, for us, as we think about this, this kind of joy becomes possible when God's purposes in the world are what define our purpose in life. When God's purposes in the world are what define our purpose in life. That's the key to making this kind of inexplicable joy possible. So I just want to consider a couple of implications of this for us. Kind of bring it down into the dirt, so to speak. If you want a joyful life, then you have to consider this question. How do you measure your life? And by that I mean, what is the metric you use? Uh, there's a Harvard business professor named Clay Christensen. Uh, he's very well known for his work in the area of innovation. Um, but he's written a book more recently called How Will You Measure Your Life? And it's interesting because he's drawing on the business world as an analogy that can then be applied to our whole lives. He says, you know, in business, um, there are different ways that a company can measure their growth. And however you measure your growth, whatever that bottom line is, that's going to affect your strategies. That's going to affect how you do business day to day and the decisions that you make. And he says the same is true in life. However you measure growth, however you measure success, whatever that metric is, that's going to shape how you live. So be thoughtful about how you measure your life and how you define success. So the question is, how do we measure our lives? What's the metric? What's the bottom line? If you want to know the answer to that for yourself, ask it this way. What is that thing in my life about which I say, as long as I have that thing, I'm okay? As long as that thing is there and secure and growing, as long as I can count on it, I'm okay. What you're saying is, that's, that's how I measure my life. Joy, joy is, is, is what emerges when we know that that bottom line is secure. Joy is the thing that we feel when we know that that measurement, that, that, that thing, the main thing, is secure and growing. And everybody has one. You know, for, for some of us, and I, it's probably not too many of us, I don't think too many of us are in this category. For, for, for some people, it's how much money you make. It's if you're climbing the org chart, you know. It's the influence that you have, the, the sense of your importance relative to other people at the cocktail party. I mean, for some of us, it's that, maybe. You know, I think, I think many more of us are maybe more noble, we say, oh, we know, it's, we know life's not about that. That's no way to measure life. It's about my friends. It's about my family. It's about my kids. And that's where Christensen goes. If you read his book, he, that's his thing. He's, the whole point of his book is it's not about your career. It's about your family. That's the most important thing. That's a lot more noble. I, I think there are a few people here who are even more altruistic than that. It's about helping people. It's about making a difference. That's my bottom line. 
That's what I really care about. It's about, it's about going out and, and loving my neighbors and helping people and making the world a better place. That's what I care about. True altruism, right? So all of these things are metrics. They're things that we look at. As long as this is happening, I'm okay. I can feel joy. I can feel contentment. See, what we're really saying there is not to live is Christ, but we're saying to live is success, achievement. To live is family, friends, kids. To live is making a difference in helping people. Some of these things are great measures. You could do a lot worse. But they all have an Achilles heel. They all have a weakness. And here's the weakness. It's all a crapshoot. It's all a crapshoot. At the end of the day, you have no control over whether these things will be secure or not. You can do all the right things and work 100 hours a week and still not get the promotion. You know, you can build a great business and the economy collapses out from under you and you go bankrupt. Nothing that you did Things you couldn't control. You can pour yourself into your friends and you may lose those friends. You can pour yourself into your family. You can pour yourself into your kids and say, to, for me to live is kids. I'm going to sacrifice to do everything to be the best parent I possibly can for my kids. I can, I can pour all of myself into them. And then guess what? They may grow up and say, you kind of smothered me. I'm moving to the other side of the country. A and you may not see them again. Right? Or, or you may do everything right, and, and they simply may die. Right now, that's a hard thing to bring up on Mother's Day, so I'm sorry. I, I beg your forgiveness, but it's worth considering that there, there, there's a difference between the tragedy of that, the unimaginable tragedy of that. There's a difference between people who experience that, but they're able to move on, and people who are crushed by it. And the people who are crushed by it who, who, who can't go on living. It's probably something to do with the fact that those kids were the measure of their life. If I have nothing else as long as I have this. So whatever it is, whatever your metric is, you know because it's the thing that when it gets taken away, it crushes you. Life is not worth living without this thing. There's only one definition of life there's only one metric, there's only one measurement that is absolutely guaranteed never to fail or falter, and that is Christ. As Paul says, to live is Christ. Nothing else works. Nothing else is secure. It's all a crapshoot. Because it may or may not have connection with God's unfolding purposes. You have no way of knowing, but the one thing that you know is a constant is Christ. So Paul's able to say, in my past, I suffered and I'm in prison, but the gospel of Christ is advancing. In the present, I, there's so much uncertainty and people are trying to displace me, but Christ is being proclaimed. And in the future, I may live, I may die, but either way, Christ is going to be glorified. And if, because that's his metric, he's able to rejoice. Not by minimizing the suffering or, or explaining it away or ends justify the means, but simply because he has built his life on the one sure thing. These things are hard, but they don't crush him. It's real suffering. It's bitter suffering. But it doesn't end him. Because that's not the measure of his life. The way we know that God's purposes will never fail, ultimately, is when we look at the cross. 
That's how you know. It's the one sure thing. All of the powers of evil, all of humanity, united against the purposes of God. Doing everything we could to thwart the purposes of God. What better way than to take God's chosen Messiah sent here to save the world, to save Israel, to save us all, and to humiliate him and discredit him and execute him. What better way to do it? And at the end of all that, as, as, as humanity is walking away saying, a job well done, Let's, that, you know, we'll not have to worry about that anymore. Three days later, Jesus rises and Jesus says, you did only exactly what my father gave to you to do. You only did your part in the great play of history. You were playing your part. It doesn't matter if you knew it or not. You were part of my purpose. You can almost say Jesus saying, good job. You did it exactly right, right? Every swing of the hammer into the wood had been planned. It was a part of this unfolding purpose of God. And you look at that. And you look at the fact that the cross not only shows us that God's purposes can't be thwarted, it shows us this, that before we even knew Jesus, before there was ever even the invitation to say to live is Christ, Jesus is the one that looked at you and said, for me, to live is you. In other words, you're the one I'm giving my life to. You're the one I'm giving my life for. Do you want unshakable joy? You will never find joy in your circumstances. It comes from the bottom line. It comes from the measure of your life. And there's only one measure that is absolutely secure, and that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would take your words, whatever of this is of you, and that you would drive them into our hearts. And as we sing and pray and share in this meal a bit later, that those would be like water and sunlight that would cause that seed to grow and bring life into our hearts. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.